0: This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. I have my first cold of the season. It started after attending the International Salvia Summit in the Bay Area recently and coming down with a sore throat. From experts across the globe at this conference, one of the recurring messages was the long history of the members of the salvia genus, or sage, being used for food and medicine. Ironically enough, I heard more than once from speakers that tea brewed from salvia leaves was commonly used as a tonic for sore throats and respiratory complaints. I, of course, have now been drinking sage tea all week. To me, it tastes slightly medicinal, but with some local honey, it is fragrant and ultimately soothing, which has me thinking about the power of plants and the power of herbs most particularly. Ethnobotany is the academic study of how people of a particular culture or region make or made use of the plants around them for food, for tools, for medicine. The term herbal, referring to a book or otherwise codified collection of knowledge about the use of plants for food or medicine, seems to have first come into use in the 16th century. Such codices date back as far as ancient Egypt. The study of herbals is rich, and there are many out there to choose from, more every day. There are encyclopedic herbals, there are ethnobotanical herbals, there are women's herbals, culinary herbals, historic herbals, cultural herbals, regional herbals, and aromatherapy herbals. Joining me today to talk more about this rich history and everyday usefulness of ongoing importance is Stephen Orr, author of the new American herbal, published by Clarkson Potter Random House in 2014. This book's particular observations on the refreshing new influences of diverse cultural horticultural backgrounds into this ancient genre of herbals really resonated with me since first acquiring the book. Stephen, whose creativity driven work has included key roles at House and Garden and Martha Stewart Living, is currently the editor-in-chief of Better Homes and Gardens and is based in Des Moines. Iowa. Welcome, Stephen.
1: Hi, Jennifer. How are you?
0: I am well, thank you. You clearly have a long personal experience with plants and gardens. It's one of the recurring themes across your professional career. What were some of the early influences that attracted you to plants, to nature, gardening, and the importance of educating people about gardens?
1: Well, I mean, I guess my my relation, the education came later, but my own personal relationship with plants was—I don't—I almost feel like it was innate in me somehow. Um, I, it did definitely was developed by my parents. So, um, so many people would say, when you ask them what made you uh, interested in gardening or in plants, most people will mention um, a family member, often a grandparent or a parent. And in my case, my—you know—I I say I'm a I'm a first generation non-farmer. My my family has always been farmers as far back as we know, and I have one of those families where people like to do genealogy because my last name is Orr, and it's um, not a common name, it's a Scottish name, but so we have a lot of the history, and it seems like we've always kind of been attached to the land and farming, back to Scottish times, um, back in the 1500s, and so... For me to not be on a farm and grow up on a farm like my father did, I think my dad wanted to educate his kids even in, I grew up in Abilene, Texas, in West Texas, a town of about 90,000, and we didn't grow up anywhere in a farming situation. We were in town, but my dad wanted to grow okra and tomatoes and onions and peppers. And so I remember very distinctly at a really young age, four, maybe from the age of four, being kind of attached to my dad's side, whenever there was stuff to do outside, I didn't like mowing, <laughs> but I, uh, I, did, I I think I kind of actually made up a grass allergy to avoid mowing because that was more hard work. But I enjoyed um, all the different things my dad would do with tomatoes and, and peppers, and we didn't grow many herbs back then. We just grew vegetables and um, flowers. My mom liked the flowers, um, and and we grew those for her, and then also we. My mom was in the 70s, so my mom was into houseplants. So I was in, outside, I was attached to my dad, working in the garden, feeding the roses, protecting the tomato seedlings. Inside, I was attached to my mom, kind of helping her water the plants. I remember her putting iced tea over the Boston ferns. And so I'd say that's kind of the personal start of it all. And then as I started to move through my life, I kind of abandoned gardening. And then when I moved to New York City in the 80s, I... Uh, found myself, luckily enough, it was a long time ago, real estate's different, but I was renting an apartment with a, an outdoor roof area that was suitable for gardening with a hose hookup, and I just started growing things, and one of the first things I bought was herbs. Hmm.
0: Tell us about the path that would lead you, and again, you have the long career in in, in writing in writing about plants and gardens and home style. This incredibly rich historic genre starts, you know, maybe as early as the first century, and you join the ranks of people like Dias What compelled you to say, I want to write this new book?
1: Well, I it was more of my feeling as an editor. I'm, you know, as you said I've been a magazine editor for a long time and one of my jobs is to think about the reader and what they want and what they're going to what they're going to want in the future. And so I'd say when the my herb book started to develop, I had already done one book called Tomorrow's Garden which mm-hmm. was about sustainability and I wanted to do a book about sustainability that was also about the aesthetics of sustainability, because often sustainability books would not address how things look. And I felt, I'm I'm very much someone who's trying to take, I have a very arcane interest in many things, (laughs) as you can see in the book. I love trivia, and sometimes I can really nerd out about stuff. And then I want to transfer that to a mass audience, which is what the magazine will do. And here at Better Homes and Gardens, it's kind of fun because I have to try to tame my nerdy instincts <laughs> to for an audience. Of, we have a readership of 40 million people. You know, It's one of the largest magazines in the country. And so I'm always having to be like, okay, well, what part of this will 40 million people be interested in? Because I could easily overwhelm them with you know, trivia and knowledge that's not useful necessarily. So for me, I I just always thought with the sustainability, that was this one path. And then when I wanted to write my second book, I thought, what's next? You know, what are gardeners interested in? And I knew already edible gardening was a big trend with vegetables and growing tomatoes at home in small spaces. And and that's fantastic. And I actually do that here myself in my new house in Des Moines. Um, I moved from New York about a year ago. And I really enjoy that connection to nature that growing things out of a planter gives you. But I also didn't want to do yet another book of, of vegetable gardening. There were a lot of current books of vegetable gardening out there right now, and I felt there were not a, a many herb books that were dealing with um, multi—I'm going to— I guess I would call it the multicultural nature the more pluralistic look at herbs mm-hmm. versus a European a Eurocentric view of herbs. Mm-hmm. So most herb books that I had in my collection and I've been collecting them for a long time as most gardeners do I have a lot of garden books that date back to the 19th century. I mean not not most gardeners don't. That's why I become a nerd again. I have a lot of books that date back a long time because I just love collecting garden books and so I have a lot of Garden books, and I'd say most of the ones that were from the turn of the century, or the there was an herb, herb author renaissance kind of in the 40s, with a lot of uh, female authors Mm -hmm. writing about herbs. Those were very Eurocentric. They really were examining um, books, previous books from other centuries, based on European um, knowledge. That dates back to Greece, and I wanted to pull in in a in a in a kind of a mass way for people to appreciate that our country is very pluralistic. That we have people coming from all of the all over the world, and they want to bring their plants with them. So that's really the motivation for it.
0: Tomorrow's Garden. Um, I'm glad that you brought that up because it's a, a book I really enjoy, and it definitely did set the the scene or the tone for why this was a a great second book in this arena for for your work and. I love this book. <laughs> Thank and you very I, much. I too have been collecting herbals, you know, since I was maybe seventeen. I was given my first one, which I actually have with me here, called Hygia, a woman's herbal, the Janine Parvati herbal. And it's a fabulous yeah, book. Great book. I think my next set that I acquired, you know, when I was like eighteen or nineteen was Mrs. Greaves, The New mm-hmm. Herbal, two volume. And this is what really struck me about your book, The New American Herbal, is what you just said this idea that herbalism is not just codified in northern Europe and you get the sense that it it could be from some of the books that came before and this description you give in the beginning of living in a zip code that is among the most diverse in the U.S. at the time that you were writing was really refreshing, as I say, that we have all of these cultural influences coming in and bringing new plants, new herbs, new methodologies at the same time we're having this fantastic potentially fantastic let's I'm going to make a caveat there of chemistry and chemists researching some of the makeup of these plants that we're using and why are they effective and why do people in Peru and Argentina and Turkey and Greece all have a similar use historically for the same genus of plants. What were some of the greatest challenges for you in writing this book, given that multiplicity?
1: Research, obviously, is challenging because you don't want to get it wrong. And it's not a scholarly book. But I did depend on a lot of other books that were more scholarly. And since my book is more for the general reader, I want it to be Um, The way we do magazines is to kind of entice and lure in the best possible way people into certain interests that they may not know they had or they just have the germ of an interest, and Mm -hmm. we want to make it blossom, the seed of an interest and make it blossom, if I want to make my metaphor correct. But I I really – That was the hard part. It was so much research. Um, I used all sorts of old books, new books, people with specialties in Chinese medicine or specialties in Native American ethnobotany. And I was very clear from the beginning that I wanted to source all of that for uh, the bibliography. And I even had an editor say, well, you don't need a bibliography, nobody cares. And I said, well, actually in this book, it is very important. Number one, I need to honor the people that I looked at. And so I quote them. Wherever possible and give them credit in the text, but also I want to have a really solid bibliography because I knew with my research for the book that I had depended on other people's bibliographies greatly to learn where information flows from. And also, one of the ideas of the book is you know, suggested reading list, because this is an entryway book. And if people have a particular interest in Native American plants and herbs, then I want to give them a good selection of what I found to be the best ones, because it's like suggested reading that they might want to learn more for their different path. But the research was the hardest part, Um, but also the most fun, because as I said, I'm kind of a nerd with plant knowledge and plant lore, and I have kind of a librarian's brain in some respect for absorbing research and finding things. And it is very fun to go search another a library in Mexico's collection for materials and then you know, do a little auto-translate just to see if it's interesting and then talk to a friend who speaks Spanish better than I do and read Spanish better than I do and have them help me translate some of that material. That's really was fun. That's the That part of it is the most challenging, but it's also the, the kind of sleuthing, the kind of herbal Sherlock Holmes part of it that I, I love the most. It was really what got me excited was when I found a very exciting thread to follow on certain plants. Um, for instance, there's a couple of plants in the book that are not mentioned as far as I know in any English language book. I've come across um, a plant like muitle, which is a which is more of a medicinal herb from Mexico, and then a, a couple of other herbs from Mexico that I found being used in in my neighborhood in Queens. And I still have an apartment in Jackson Heights in Queens, which is that zip code that you mentioned is one of the most diverse in the country. And at our local farmer's market, there was especially one seller who had the most amazing selection of herbs from Mexico that I'd never seen before. Mm. The most common of them would be papalo, but papalo has a lot of re- uh, relatives that also were were used like Tlaplanche uh, and Pepicha. So I learned, I couldn't find anything in the English language, both online or in a library that addressed those types of plants. So I really had to go to sources in Mexico that were in Spanish to find out more. That's that's pretty thrilling when you find out something in a library or in some sort of source that helps you bolster your case for why that how that herb is used and where it comes from.
0: And that is exactly the joy that I took from this book. It's almost, you know, we talk about gateway drugs. This is like a gateway herbal for me. It and is, to yeah. read through your bibliography in the back and your suggested reading list was illuminating and fun. And to come across some of these plants that I had never heard of before, you know, and I think as gardeners we consider ourselves, especially if we've traveled or lived in different places, we we think of ourselves as pretty inclusive. So it's so fun to feel this tent of herbal legacy expanded. The term herbal refers to a book or otherwise codified collection of knowledge about the use of plants for food or medicine. Such codices date back as far as ancient Egypt, and there are more every day. Joining me today to talk more about this rich history and everyday usefulness of ongoing importance is Stephen Orr, author of The New American Herbal, published by Clarkson Potter Random House in 2014. We'll be back after a break to hear more about specific herbs and their uses. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back with Stephen Orr, author of The New American Herbal, to hear more about the rich history of herbals and their ongoing usefulness and importance. Welcome back. My next question was going to be what were some of your, your great joys or surprises, and you clearly started speaking a little bit about the joys of this and its expanding of your own knowledge.
1: There was, uh, there was one other joy, too, if I yeah. could interrupt, was yeah. it, and I just thought of it while you were talking about it, was that, you know, I had to be a sleuth as well to find the herb to photograph because I took all the photographs in the book and it, you know, I thought if I'm going to make a modern herbal, it should be photography and not illustration. Now, illustration, obviously, of a plant, you really get to show it exactly the way you want to show it. You show it in bloom, you show the root, you show the leaves, you show it at its best possible situation. Now I was doing it with my own camera, um, and I, you know, I have taken pictures for a long time, and I have an art degree, so I, I knew how to take pictures. But you know, I had to go to a lot of botanical gardens to find these plants because I wanted to do what we would call in in magazines a headshot, like a like a model would have. Yeah. Like I wanted to take a good headshot of every plant in the book as much as possible. I couldn't do every plant, but the, all the major plants, I wanted to have a, a, a photograph of it that you could. The average person could look at it, would help them see it when they see it in a market or if they're in, a, if they're in their farmer's market and see it, they'd recognize papalo, you know. And um, so that, that kind of thing was really fun. And that was really a lot of the work was finding the examples. So I I really enjoyed being a detective once again to find collections of medicinal and herbal plants. And I found some great places to visit. So I, I listed those in the book as well, because mm-hmm. if you're a plant nerd like me and you want to go, you find yourself in Montreal or San Francisco or Seattle, what a great opportunity to stop off at a public garden and see an amazing collection of these plants all together. Exactly,
0: exactly. Did you, uh, how long did it take you to write the book and, and do all of that research and photography, Stephen?
1: I think it started slow. You know, like most things, I was doing it with a job, so it wasn't like I stopped work to work on it. Um, I had a full-time job while I did it, mm-hmm. and I worked, and I was very clear about my job. I didn't work on it at work. I was, I, was, I was actually very open about that. I said, I'm not doing this during business hours. So I could only do it at nights and weekends, and it took me three years about,
0: I'd wow. say. Not a labor of love. Did you get into any of the new chemical analysis of plants and their alkaloids and terpenes and terpenoids and the, the chemical basis for why they are useful? Did you come across any research on that? Yes,
1: that was so interesting to me. And to tackle that topic was challenging for me, and that's where I'm always worried that I'm making a mistake because it's so complicated with the the different structures of the chemicals. But there's some great sources out there. And I loved, one thing I loved was to take everything I knew about a series of plants and my thoughts about them. And we can talk a minute about meaning that we attach to plants because I think that's important to talk about. But all the meaning I'd attach to certain plants, when you look at them, what what links them chemically, that herbally, the chemical nature, the constituent that links certain plants, is fascinating because as soon as you identify it, it makes you realize why you experienced this and didn't even know. For instance, uh, eugenol is something that is present in a lot of different plants and it expresses itself in in different ways. There's kind of clovey fragrance. And so clove, all Spice, basil. When you blindfold yourself, you really can smell the clovey smell that floats amongst those different plants that you never really thought of in the same way. It was interesting to just have certain things that were chemicals that would appear in a rose geranium or a lemon scented geranium and also appear in lemon verbena and lemon balm and lemon grass. And so it's fun to kind of just Think of them that way chemically is a Mm -hmm. new way to think about plants for me, and I love that.
0: No plant is, of course, just one alkaloid or one terpene. You can isolate some of these compounds and understand the plant a little better, but the complex reaction and effect that they have on us is made of so much more than just that one chemical distillation. When you talk about the meaning we attach to plants, what, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, and that that kind of controversy of looking at herbs only from a chemical standpoint, I did encounter in my research, and I could see that some people would raise a red flag about that and say, you know, what you were saying, like you can't do that so simply. And that's true. I wanted to treat everything with equal importance. I didn't want to just focus on the chemical. I'm not a chemical. I'm not a chemist, so I didn't want to overanalyze that. I wanted to focus on the magic of plants as well. And so just as important for me in the interest of the chemicals was the magic and the lore and the stories attached to the plants, because the plants to me, and one reason I've become such a lover of herbs, and now when I grow things, I'm most attracted to herbs over, say, an ornamental plant, is that um, it is our human bond with the plant, much like a domesticated animal. You know, we have a relationship with the plants that has brought them into our domestic sphere, and we don't control the plants, and the plants don't control us, but we have a relationship that goes back thousands, if not, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. And I, I think that's the most exciting part about herbs, is that human-plant relationship and how we look at it. Our our story we attach to the plant, what a plant does for us historically, you know, this the doctrine of signatures, which... Mm-hmm which is thought of as an ancient, you know, Greek or medieval idea of that, something that you can put a religious thing on it and say that, well, you know, God made a plant look a certain way so that humans know to use it for that. So for instance, carrots, when you slice them, look like the iris of an eye. So that's why we always think carrots are good for our eyes. Walnuts are good for your brain because when the walnut shell looks like a brain, you know, uh, lungwort or pulmonaria is good for lung disorders because it has a spotted lung shape. So I just kind of report all of it equally. I report on the chemistry back up and I report on our lore. And then I want the reader to take the path once again that they choose. If they want to go down a more um, spiritual version of what the plant version is, um, they can. If they want to stick to, to, to straight-up Western science, they can. If they want to look at it from a chemist's view, they can. But the relationship, no matter what it is, and the long history and ethnobotany and anthropology attached to these stories, which I call in the book oft-told tales, mm-hmm. the same stories told for centuries, right? And that could be, to some people, completely false story. But to me, it has value because it's been repeated for so many centuries. I want that that lore to continue because it's like a story passed down for generations.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, of course, each of us add our own herbal history as we go through our lives. You know, when you and I connected over social media on fritillaries and I sent you some seed, that becomes part of that history of that plant yeah. for me or yeah. which plants our, our grandparents loved or grew or passed to us. its It's all part of it. If you were going to recommend a diverse handful of plants that might be a little bit out of the ordinary or meaningful to you that you would like to see readers or listeners try, what would those be, Stephen?
1: Well, let's see. That's a hard one. I um, know. There's so many plants I love to grow. and I have my, my apartment in New York, and I grow a, little, a few herbs upstate. Well, actually, I grow kind of a lot of herbs upstate um, at a little weekend house. So now I have a home in Des Moines for my job at Better Homes and Gardens, and so I have more space. I need more sun, but I have more space. And first thing I did was pack it with herbs as many herbs as possible. The herbs I use the most that I just can't grow enough of, and this sounds kind of crazy and talk to me in two years and maybe I'll say I have too much. <laughs> I can never have enough mint. I know that sounds crazy and I know that they'll, they'll grow because I, I put all the mint in myself. There was no mint before and I put them in kind of areas where they could spread and do their thing and it wouldn't bother me. But I still can't have enough mint. I, I use mint almost every day for tea or for a wide variety of cooking. And then chives I use all the time. Chives is my favorite all-around cooking herb. I just use it all, almost, almost every dish just for that subtle onion flavor. And I'm a big fan of sage. And then on the more unusual front, as I said, I like making tea. And, and being a Texan, I like iced tea. So I make iced tea almost every couple of days from full-on just kind of a tea of boiled or hot water over green herbs. Sometimes mm-hmm. they add one black tea bag and have kind of a faint black tea with flavored with those things. The One of the plants I love the most is Tulsi or holy basil. It's a variable herb, meaning that depending on where you buy it, you'll get kind of slightly different versions mm-hmm. of that plant. It's very, of course, very popular and holy in Hindu cultures in India. So that herb I use a lot and I go out to great links to find it online or grow it from seed. I also love growing lemongrass. I love pine apple sage, one culinary herb that I think people don't use that much is marjoram. Some people find it soapy tasting, mm-hmm. but I love the flavor of marjoram because it is kind of a summer, for me, it's a taste of summer over grilled vegetables. It's as far as spices. You know, there, we have a lot of talk about what's an herb and what's a spice. Even what's an herb is a very undefined mm-hmm. word for most people. But for spices, I've really become a huge fan of allspice, both in its berry form, which is dried, and I also grow it as a house plant for its leaves, which I use like bay leaves. And it makes it a pretty good houseplant that grows slowly, but mine is now about a foot and a half tall. So you can pick leaves off of it, like a bay leaf, and use it, and in, it'll in, in scent um, roasted potatoes or whatever you're doing with this amazing allspice flavor, um, which is a mixture. That's why it's called allspice because it resembles so many other spices.
0: That is great. I am gonna, I'm going to go try an allspice. Going forward, for you personally, what are your hopes for how readers and gardeners might put the book's information to use?
1: I just hope people try something new. You know, I'm always encouraging people to try something that goes beyond their norm. And here in Des Moines, what's interesting is Des Moines doesn't have a reputation for diversity in many ways, but I have to say that, you know, our farmer's market in downtown Des Moines is one of the largest and most interesting farmer's market I've been to. And it has a lot of farmers that are the Hmong people from various places in Laos and South Asia. Those people that come and sell at the booths, I am so intrigued. There's so many beautiful herbs that they're selling that are unusual to me. So that sensation that I have here in my new city, shopping from someone from another culture who's wearing her native costume and is selling these herbs at a farmer's market in the middle of the United States, that's what I'm excited about. I'm excited about something new. I'm excited about difference. I really don't like sameness. I'm not interested in it. I am interested in diversity and new and different. And I think in our plant world and our plant palette as a gardener, it's not political, but it does signify if you want to try new things in your garden and grow something new to eat, to put into a dish that you've never tasted it before, that's a statement for me. It's a statement of wanting to be trying something new and different and informing your life with attaching yourself to another culture, even at a distance.
0: It's beautiful in that it's it's diversity and it's also connection through common ground a it's nice... a
1: common it's a common ground it's a common thread. you know the United States is made up of immigrants, and those immigrants bring their interest to us, and we should celebrate and value our plant immigrants the way we we value the people immigrants and that's that's what I think is my message without getting too like you know waving the flag but it is it to me that's what's so interesting is trying to understand what the culture did with that plant and then using some I can never use Tulsi like a native Indian might do you know uh, from someone who lives in New Delhi might Mm -hmm. use and and value their Tulsi plant in a way that I never am able to do because I'm not Hindu, but in the same respect, I do really love that plant and we had our first frost and that was the first thing I brought indoors.
0: Stephen Orr is the editor-in-chief of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. He is the author of several books, including Tomorrow's Garden and The New American Herbal, published by Clarkson Potter Random House in 2014. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Hope you'll listen. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit MyNSPR.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.